That is a beautiful intro video, but that's what I'm not going to be speaking on today. So scrap that. Um, I forgot to turn in my my um, lesson plan or my speaking talk to Hunter earlier in the week, and so we just did the regular sermon series. But Aaron said I could preach on anything I wanted to, so that's what I'm going to do. My name is Brett Emil Bosch, son of John Robert Bosch, son of John Emil Bosch, Jr., son of John Emil Bosch, Sr., son of George Bosch, son of Trutbert Bosch. Trutbert was my immigrant ancestor. I don't know what year he left Germany, but he made it to America by 1815, 1851, because that was the year that he married Caroline Carlin in New Orleans. He was born in 1815, the last year of the Napoleonic Wars, and he left during the German Revolution that started in 1848. Although I can't say for certain, he was not just an immigrant, but he was a refugee, escaping the wars in Europe for a better life for his family. In January 1999, after serving two years in East Africa, on my return trip, I decided to meet my grandmother Lois in Germany to visit this village. We were picked up by a couple, a young couple, Marcus and Susie Haas, who my grandmother had met doing genealogy research, and they had come from the same village. So they picked us up in the airport, and it was a little bit strange even back in that day to meet someone that you've never met before, and they just pick you up in a different country. But that's what we did. I flew from East Africa. She flew from Louisiana. And we met in Germany, and we made our way to this tiny village called Bingen, which is right on the Rhine River in the very corner of southwest Germany between France and Switzerland, right there in the corner. We went to the village, and we went to the village church. And right next to the village church is the village cemetery. On the gravestones, I noted all the Emil Bosches in the cemetery. And they all had the death date of the early 1940s. My distant cousins had died fighting for their homeland during the Second World War. It was a pivotal moment for me. And I soaked in what might have been. Fast forward to 2016, and I found my way to Lesbos, a Greek island off the Turkish coast. My family and I were living in Turkey at the time, and I saw another site that I'll never forget. Thousands and thousands of orange life vests faded by the sun, scattered not too far from the beach. The island was serving as a landing zone in Europe for over 10,000 refugees fleeing from war-torn Afghanistan and Syria. The refugees there, those that have made it that far, will be herded in tent cities and then wait transit to mainland Europe and beyond. Those that didn't make it were buried in the cemeteries across the island. So my story has a refugee in it. And probably not just one. And as I look around this room, through my reading glasses, I know that you all have similar stories. Every single one of us has either an immigrant 
or refugee in their, in their ancestry. And when I reflect on the great overarching thread of the Bible, or at least one of the themes, is it not that of forced migration? Adam and Eve were banished from Eden. Cain was banished from them. Abraham was uprooted from Ur of the Chaldeans to move first to Haran and then to Canaan, the promised land. His family did not last too long there before they were forced by famine to move to Egypt. And then after 400 years of slavery, now not just a family of Israel, but a nation of Israel was led by Moses through the desert, the Exodus story, back to the promised land. But they didn't last too long then before they were uprooted again by Assyrian conquest and Babylonian conquest. And then King Cyrus allowed them to return to the land that they once lived. That didn't last too long before the Greeks with Alexander and the Romans soon invaded. And it's that time period, the Roman occupation, that Jesus was born to us. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the Holy Family, were refugees in Egypt, recounting that same story of the Exodus so many generations ago. Even that didn't last long. Forty years later, after Christ died on the cross for our sins, the Jews and the early sect of Christians in AD 70, because Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, were scattered to the four corners of the Roman Empire. Is that not our story? Is that not your story? I served for over 19 years with, um, with my wife, and, and we lived in the Middle East for about 14, 16 years. I now serve with the National Baptist Association. I work with over 150 churches in and around Nashville, many of which are, about 25 of which are ethnic churches. They worship in another language other than English, so Chinese and Russian, uh, Burmese and Spanish. I want to take you on a journey today. We'll start with Leviticus 19, a chapter that holds the key to understanding the heart of God's desire for his people. Leviticus 19 begins with a call to holiness. Turn with me to Leviticus 19.1. You can put it up on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy. The Lord your God Almighty is holy. If this sounds familiar, it's because Jesus quotes this verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, you say, well, he was talking about holiness in the Old Testament and perfect in the New Testament. But when you realize that one is translated from Hebrew into English, and then Jesus is probably speaking in Aramaic, then translated into Greek, and then into English, you understand that it's the same passage. Many of the commands found in this chapter echo Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, including the commands not to lie, not to steal, not to make false idols. 
But this chapter is not merely a repetition of the Ten Commandments. It's a reminder of God's call to holiness and what that means. How can we be holy? How can we be perfect? Leviticus 19.9 says, When you reap the harvest of the land, do not reap to the edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now, gleanings, your translation might say gather. It's the same word. But you can't go up to the very edge of the field, even in modern times with the tractors. You have to leave that can't go to the very edge of the road. There's, there's excess, there's bounty that we leave. God, it seems, knew the condition of the human heart and his propensity to keep and hang on to every blessing. He knew that one day we would forget that humans are only stewards of the land. God is the rightful owner. Further down in Leviticus 25, 23, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. You reside in the land as foreigners and strangers. Even the promised land that God promised Abraham and Moses and his people was not their land. It's God's land. Even the land that you own here if you own property here, is not your land. It's God's land. We're only stewards of this land. So this principle, God tried to instill in his people, instill in his people. Every blessing, every gift is from the Lord and is to be shared, especially with the poor, the vulnerable, and the foreigner. We see this principle carried out in the story of Ruth. Indeed, it is critical to the story. You know the story of the roof, but I'll briefly recount it. Naomi and her husband are living in Moab. It was where her husband died and two sons died as well. All she had left was Ruth, her daughter-in-law, a Moabite, a detestable Moabite, a foreigner. When Naomi decided to return home, Ruth was determined to go with her. She uttered this famous line, Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. That convinced Naomi. We pick up in the story in chapter 2. Ruth 2, 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's side, a man standing from the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So we now we see this connection. This command from Leviticus, Boaz obeyed. Ruth was able to glean from Boaz's field, And in doing so, he spared the life of Naomi and Ruth. You know the rest of the story. Boaz was able to redeem Ruth and marry her. And they would later become the great-grandparents of David, the greatest king of Israel, and the ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does this apply to us today? We are not ancient Israel. 
We are not living in the times of Exodus or Ruth. By the time of Jesus, even, the Jews had completely forgotten this rule and were more concerned with obeying the strictures of their own man-made laws. In Matthew 12, Jesus is called Jesus, not Jesus, Jesus' disciples are called picking the heads of grain from the field on the Sabbath. Matthew 12, 1 and 2. At the time Jesus went to the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and began to pick up some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, um, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and quotes from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus was the true Lord of the Sabbath, the true King of Israel. But he was treated as worse than a foreigner. Lord, please convict us when we forget to show mercy to the poor and to the foreigner. And now I return full circle to Leviticus 19. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat him. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as native-born. Native-born. Love them as you love yourselves, for you were once foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it's here that we learn the reason why. Why we should share our blessings with the poor and the foreigner. Why should we be merciful and not withhold our blessings? It's plain and simple. We are also foreigners. We are also strangers in this land. God is the creator of all and the king of this universe. We are only stewards. We live out this stewardship by sharing the abundance the Lord has gifted us with. In conclusion, we return to Matthew and with Jesus' teaching of the great commandment. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Did you know that Jesus was quoting two scriptures when he gave these two commandments? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, which is right after the Shema, Hero Israel. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second command is from Leviticus 19. 19 verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So I've told you three stories today. The first is from Leviticus and God's command for Israel to be holy and what that means. To be holy is to be set apart. To put the rules of God over the rules of men. Not only are we to obey his commandments, but we are to share from our abundance. Share from our bounty. We are to love the poor 
and the foreigners. Second, we have the story of, of Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth, which is an example of doing just that. Boaz allowed the poor to glean from his harvest, and both Naomi and Boaz showed great love for Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner. David the king is born to this family of this character. Third, we have a counterexample from the Pharisees in their interaction with Jesus. The Pharisees have forgotten these rules and made up their own rules. They did not allow Jesus and his disciples even a few heads of grain. They and their kind were cursed when they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And their blessing was taken away from them. That is the warning. I want you to reflect on these three stories this week. Go back and read the entirety of Leviticus 19. Reread the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters, very small. And finally, read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Compare it to Moses' Sermon on Mount Sinai. Who do you think gave Moses that sermon? And when I look around this room, I see friends. I see brothers and sisters living out this command. In doing so, they are living to be holy. They are living to be perfect. Woodbine is living on a mission. Eight families from this small church are sent out to live overseas. They embody this command to love the foreigner as themselves. They have left family and friends to live in harm's way, to be obedient to this command. Those that don't work overseas are living out this command in Nashville. One of us works at Cultivate, providing inexpensive food for the most needy. Some work with foreign university students, regularly bringing them to church and ministering to them. One of us is a midwife, helping bring life into this world. Some of us work with Project Connect, Begin Anew, and other ministries, each working with the most vulnerable in our city. One of us, or some of us, work with inner-city kids during the week, and then they turn around and they minister to our kids on Sunday. One of us is training to be a bush pilot. One works in Christian radio. One works in Christian publishing. These are just a few that I know, but there are many more. I stand not in awe of the Church of Woodbine, but of God who has assembled us, this small, eclectic group. Be encouraged, Woodbine. You are a church on mission. Be thankful and have full hearts. God has started something here. He has pruned us this year 
but that pruning is for a reason. Leave today encouraged, but also challenged. Learn to tell your story just as I've taught, turned, uh, taught my story, told my story. You each have a story to tell, and only you can tell it. Pray for one or several of you that can tell the story of Christ, how Christ changed your life with your friends and family this year. Look to your left and look to your right and say, be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Close your eyes and pray this prayer. Worship band, you can return to the stage. Lord, bring to mind one person who's not here this Sunday. Bring to mind someone that does not know your name as Savior and King. Lord, bring to mind someone that has fallen away, that used to be part of us and no longer is. Help us this year to pray for them each and every day. And when given opportunity to speak to them words of encouragement, words of truth, words of salt and light, so they may join us again this year. Be encouraged, church. Be holy, church. The Lord your God is holy. Holy.